Can getting down to zero save an overheated planet? Climate One Conversations with oil companies and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats, are recorded before a live audience and hosted by Greg Dalton. If you want to keep the Earth's temperature increase below 2 degrees, Arun Majumdar has some numbers for you. We have a budget of around 800 gigatons of CO2. We are emitting about 40 gigatons of CO2 per year, roughly, globally. So you do the math, if the emissions are flat, we have about 20 years. And after that, it has to be zero. So that's the equation we have to solve. On today's program, we'll talk about how to solve that equation. But don't worry, there won't be a test. And the only number you need to remember is zero. A zero emissions electric grid, zero emission transportation, zero emission buildings, and zero waste manufacturing. Getting to zero in those four areas could be the climate solution. But can we get everyone working on the same page? While the problem is inherently global, the impacts are extraordinarily local. The impact here in California right now is wildfires. It will be mudslides next year probably. Whereas the impact in Houston is something else. Whereas the impact in the, in the Northwest is ocean acidification. So what's it going to take? It's going to take shifting this to become a global economic crisis. Today on Climate One, Greg Dalton welcomes three experts to talk about getting down to zero together. Kate Gordon is a fellow at the Columbia University Center on Global Energy Policy. Hal Harvey is CEO of Energy Innovation and the author of Designing Climate Solutions, a policy guide for low-carbon energy. And Arun Majumdar is co-director of the Precourt Institute for Energy at Stanford. He was formerly at the U.S. Department of Energy, where he was founding director of the ARPA-E Research Program. Here's Greg Dalton. Let's begin with the elections are fresh of mind, uh, a lot of energy things. Hal Harvey, you know, there was seemed to be a lot of the initiatives went down at the states. The voters, when asked about, you know, energy, voted no in, in a lot of cases. But the candidates with carrying clean energy messages seem to do much better. So parse that for us. Well, luckily, most energy policy is set state by state in America. Uh, roughly half the carbon in the economy runs through monopoly pipes and wires. And therefore, the utilities commissions get to decide whether those feeds are green or brown. Um, and we had a lot of green governors elected uh, and a lot of pledges, I think half a dozen pledges, to go to 100% renewable energy on the grid by 2040, 2045, and 2050. So I would say it was a very strong Of course, election. pledges when you're running for election, that's you know, kind of mm. cheap and easy, right? Well, it's, it's getting cheaper and easier to do the right thing. <laughs> that's, the, that's the other great news. So solar prices have dropped 80% in the last decade. Wind is down by more than half. Offshore wind is catching up. Mm. Batteries by 80%. So it's no longer a choice. In fact, it would never was a choice between doing the economical thing and doing the right thing. But now you have to consciously decide to pay more if you wish to continue to pollute. For, for new generation. Um, Kate Gordon, your take on this. We, we did see uh, uh, Jared Polis in Colorado, J.B. Pritzker in Illinois, Gretchen Whitmer in Michigan, uh, Tim Waltz, Wisconsin, a lot of you know, governors saying they want to go support Paris, go to green energy. Uh, but when voters were asked, do they want to pay more? They went, nah. Yeah, I think um, I'm, I'm excited about the governors. I, I sp I'm from Wisconsin, so that was a really big win for, for me um, personally. I... 
I think what we saw in Washington State, for instance, where we saw a second carbon tax go down um, again, uh, was really less about voters not thinking this stuff is important and more about a very real urban-rural split in this country. And the thing about Washington State that people often forget because we think of Seattle as being Washington State, King County is one part of Washington State. There's a huge amount to the east of King County. And when you look at the returns on that initiative, it got it needed to get more than 60% in King County and and the neighboring counties it didn't make it for a variety of reasons but it got almost 10 maybe 10% or less in many of the eastern counties and so i think that's actually an important lesson as we go forward on these issues that as you're looking at this stuff state by state, not just district by district, the districts that elect clean energy champions are often urban districts, frankly, um, or they're places where the industry is very clearly already established. So you have a big wind farm that's employed a bunch of people, or you have um, you know, some kind of other industrial plant or some kind of other um, uh, clean energy, a data center that's running on renewables, whatever. In a lot of states, there's still a really strong kind of economic engine that's based on extraction, or it's just not, it, this hasn't come to those places. And I think we have to do a much better job of making an economic development case around energy and not just an environmental case. Arut Medjimdar, your take on, you know, you've seen budgets, you've seen bipartisan support for uh, clean energy, ARPA-E. You know, uh, I think there was some, Trump wanted to smash some budgets and Republicans lifted them back up. Your take on how you know, the outlook after this election. Well, I mean, I, I just look at California, for example. I mean, I think we are all in the middle of, in the, you know, just a, a disaster situation with all the forest fires and, and the impact on the environment. And this is, you know, due to the extreme weather that we've had, the droughts that we've had. And, and this is the impact of, of climate change, which is we're seeing it happen, and we are all getting affected by that. And I think, at least in California, if, if energy and environment is not taken into account, I think it's a risk that I don't think people um, will, will allow that to happen. And we saw that in Southern California, in Orange County, et cetera, that you know, that, that is right in front and center. So I think dinner. this is affecting people's lives. And when extreme temperatures, you know, people talk about one degree, 1.2 degrees of temperature rise above since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. That's the wrong message, frankly. It's not the average. It is the tail of the distribution. And the distribution, the tail is reaching four to five times the standard deviation that was formerly had. And those, that tail, and there's a very important scientific term for this, the tail is wagging the dog. <laughs> okay. And when the tail is wagging the dog, we are seeing that happen right now. And I think if, if politicians don't pay attention, I, I don't care whether it's Republican or Democrats, if the people are affected by it, and people and the politicians are not, not, not paying attention to that, they're not listening. And I think that's what we're going to see. But Kate Gordon, the climate connections not being made in the media, if you ask a lot of people, are these fires related to climate? A lot of them say, well, maybe, you know, that connection. And then these episodes, these severe traumas come and they go, and then we forget. Harvey came, you know, Houston's had 500-year floods, and then... We are resilient. We, you know, we move on and we forget. Right. So they don't last. Well, Houston had three 500-year floods within right. five years. So it, right. it, um, and it actually drives me a little bit crazy that the media is not putting more of an emphasis on climate change with the fires. I absolutely understand you cannot attribute specific fires to climate change. But we absolutely know, and you know, we've, we've seen the modeling on this, 
that there will be more frequent fire seasons and they'll be more severe, just as there will be more frequent mudslide seasons. That's going to be the other half of the coin here in California. It's going to be mudslides and fires. And we need to be prepared as a state to go forward on that. One thing, just in response to Arun, you know, I think that it's absolutely true that in places where these impacts are being felt, there's more public awareness. But we did just see um, uh, Representative Carlos Curbelo get voted out in Florida. This is a Republican representative who put up, who started the bipartisan climate caucus in the House and put forward a carbon tax proposal that was actually very thoughtful um, and very, you know, well well regarded, and was was brought down by environmental organizations that didn't want a Republican in that seat. I also think we need to be looking carefully at that because that kind of situation, we need to be supporting champions of action who are willing to put their necks out in difficult districts. And that was one that I think we went the wrong, the, the environmental community went the wrong way on. Hal Harvey, we're talking about zero emission electric grid. Uh, in fact, there's some suggestion that the fires in California were started by perhaps a down utility line. Um, zero emission electric grid, that sounds possible in, in California. Is that something that can spread nationwide? Voters, again, you know, push back on that in Arizona and some other places. So I mentioned earlier the dramatic price drops in both solar and wind energy. Uh, and the ones that are now occurring with offshore wind, which is a completely different uh, paradigm, different times of day that the wind blows and different strengths. What these cost reductions have done have made it possible to radically accelerate the transition to a zero carbon grid. Now, people automatically think that if you go to variable sources like wind and sunshine, you need huge batteries to carry you through the night or through a long, cold winter week in North Mm -hmm. Dakota. It turns out there are half a dozen ways to deal with the variability problem. The the first is geography. The winds in California and the winds in Wyoming are not correlated. They they happen at different times. So when you hook them together with good transmission lines, which exist in many parts of the country already, they smooth each other out. Same thing goes with solar. If you have solar in Nevada and solar in California, they're going to have peaks at different times, and they smooth each other out. You can continue right across the sunbelt there. So that, that's just one example of ways to balance the system. Let me offer one more, which is regional variations of demand. Right. So Seattle and San Diego never have the same peak demand, and they have different energy supplies. <coughs> Copper wire is magic between those two, because the Bonneville Power Administration becomes the battery for San Diego. And San, Di- San Diego can shoot excess energy to the data centers in the Microsoft Amazon zone when it's needed. The point here is we can move to a zero-carbon grid much more quickly and at net savings than anyone thought possible even five or 10 years ago. And there are a number of states that are well on the way. But Kate Gordon, you spent some time in Wyoming and they uh, don't necessarily want their grid connected to California. So there's a lot of politics in the electrical grid uh, that is, you know, Texas has their own grid, thank you very much, not connected to anyone else. Um, so the politics of the grid are, are fierce. You know, it's funny. I spend a lot. I was just in Wyoming two weeks ago, and I was in Idaho two weeks before that. And I will actually tell you, in Idaho, they do want their grid connected to California because they have an enormous amount of hydropower. It's very cheap, and they want to sell it to us. They see California as a big market full of consumers that just voted in a 100% clean energy bill that they can then supply through hydro, through uh, potentially negative emissions from their forest sector. I mean, it's very interesting. It's sort of a, a turn on what you'd think, because you go to Idaho and you're from California, and you're, I'm used to people 
not listening to me because I'm from California. But now all of a sudden there's this different story, which is, oh, these guys are really close to us. We have access to their market and they want our stuff. And I think that's interesting. And we may see some of that in Wyoming too. Wyoming's a little more challenging because 70% of Wyoming's state economy comes from extractive industries. It's all coal and now coal going down, but gas going up. Um, so they're in a little bit of a different position. They, they're worried about getting connected to a grid that has a 100% energy standard. But I still think there's a message out there that we could become, I think the Western grid conversation could be opened up by this idea of, of California really creating markets for some of this stuff. The biggest wind farm in America is being built in Wyoming today. Yeah, that's right. And uh, They the like governor, wind a lot. So one other thing yeah. to keep in mind is two-thirds of all renewable energy built in America has been built in so-called red states. Right. So this is not an R versus D a thing. A lot of it this Texas. This is a smart versus yeah. not so smart thing. Yep. And Arun, Majumdar, one of the things here is to talk about electrifying everything, which would then grow the grid. So tell us about the, the path for electric adoption, electric vehicles, basically electric uh, electricity is cleaner, cheaper than kind of burning fossil fuels. So the, the issue about electric vehicles is really about the cost of batteries. And if you look at over the last decade, R&D in materials that goes into the batteries has brought down the cost of the batteries by a factor of five to six, which no one had predicted 10 years ago. I was in the Department of Energy, we were investing, we were hoping, and it happened faster than we thought. If you look at, now it's about, you know, about 150 to $200 a kilowatt hour of a battery. Um, in the next five to seven years, we anticipate, based on the innovations that are going on, again, in the materials and the packaging and all that, it'll come down to $100 a kilowatt hour. What does that mean? At $100 a kilowatt hour, in the next five to seven years, the electric vehicles will reach cost and range parity with gasoline cars without subsidies. And by the way, it has less moving parts, <laughs> it's low maintenance, and it's got a really good acceleration. <laughs> so you want to go zero to 60, this is great. Um, and so if you put all that together and you look for a consumer attractiveness to this. I mean, this is amazing. Why wouldn't you do that, right? So right now, I mean, and this is about, we're talking about the United States. Most of the EV adoption is going on in China. And India is planning to do the same because they are importers of oil. This is national security. And so if you look at the EV adoption, I think we're going to see, we're in this early stage of this S-curve, and this is going to go steep like this. The challenge, and this comes back to the grid, is can we, if, if you have, you know, we have California about 5% penetration of EVs. At 50% penetration of EVs, it'll be like going to, to the airport and trying to f look for a charging place mm -hmm. for your phone. And that's what we don't want to get into. Mm. It could introduce volatility on, on the demand side of the grid. And you have volatility in the, on the supply side as well because of renewables. And the question that we all have to kind of address, both with technology and policy, et cetera, how can we connect the two in ways that can even out the, the fluctuation and actually make it more stable and more affordable in the future? And that's a challenge that we all have to face. There's another powered uh, element to that, Hal Harvey, which is the oil companies and the electric utilities are now competing with each other. Hmm. They're now get swimming in each other's lanes. Uh, the electric utility industry, as you say, is, is largely state, more local. The oil industry is very centralized. How is the power dynamics uh, changing as these big industries now kind of are looking at each other's lunch? 
Well, one of the reasons that um, carbon tax went down in Washington is because the oil companies spent mightily to defeat it. What's beginning to happen as we turn the grid to zero carbon electricity and then electrify everything is the utilities come on side on environmental issues. Uh, the Southern Company, which is one of the grand old monopolies covering five, five or six states in the deep south, has said publicly, we'll put all the solar in you want as long as we get to own it, mm -hmm. right? Uh, PG&E, Southern California, Edison, San Diego Gas and Electric. California utilities have done heroic work on renewables and on EV charging. I think the way to go is to give the utilities the incentives to become the engines of this transition and let the oil companies just try to keep up. The only, the only way to defeat oil is to crush demand for oil. And the best way to do that is to provide the same services in ways that are both cleaner and cheaper. But, Kate Gordon, a lot of the politics of defeating oil are aimed at stopping pipelines, villainizing oil companies, attacking supply. That's what a lot of environmental and political campaigns aim to do. Is it effective? I mean, oil is complicated because it's a global commodity with very global price fluctuations. So we, we love to talk about oil as if it's some local thing where, you know, one of the big things that happened in Washington was the all of this advertising saying gas taxes would go up and you got all these rural commuters who have to go an hour and a half to get to the hospital getting worried about gas taxes. That was the conversation. We've seen it here in California. In fact, that gas taxes don't go up materially because of local policy, even local tax policy, they go up materially because of disruptions in supply, including, by the way, Hurricane Harvey, which disrupted supply. Katrina disrupted supply. So it's challenging because it's a very global conversation, but you can use it, manipulate it locally. I think, therefore, local, local battles against oil don't do that much to disrupt the global supply chain. They, they're important because they build a base of, of uh, environmental activists. They're important because it's, it's, a, it's a target that's easy to go against. I think there have been some really effective campaigns. The divestment campaign, actually, uh, has been really interesting because it, it didn't actually lead to a whole bunch of divestment from oil, but it led to a lot of really important conversation about reinvestment in other things and about portfolio diversification and about volatility and all kinds of stuff. That's been really important. So... I think it's hard to say the pipeline fight changed the whole dynamic because there's rerouting and there's global supply just changes all the time. But it is important for the movement. So those are sort of two different metrics. One quick thing on Hal's point, though, just on oil. I mean, we use oil for all kinds of stuff that's not electricity, right? So I'm just interested in your perspective on plastics and on some of these very difficult to electrify parts of the economy, steel, concrete, um, and that's more coal. But how do you look at that, that stuff? Well, much of that is actually natural gas more than oil mm -hmm. these days because it's a simpler molecule and easier to right. manipulate. Um, there are some sectors that are going to be tough to decarbonize. Fertilizer, plastics you mentioned, certain kinds of chemistry. And the way you get after them is you start now with really serious R&D mm -hmm. instead of the kind of modest sums that we have in America so far. But if you, if you dissect natural gas, about a third of it goes into industry, a third into home heating, and a third into electricity. The electricity one's pretty straightforward. Right. Home heating, we move to zero net energy buildings. Right. Um, and then industry, it's going to be tougher. Let's, let's talk, ask you, Arun, yeah. about uh, buildings. You've, you've written a lot about buildings, even testified before Congress about net uh, zero energy buildings. There are some rules on that. Santa Monica wants to have net zero buildings. You know, is that really, you know, how hard is that? Is it low-hanging fruit to get to net zero energy commercial and residential buildings? Well, Hal is really the expert in this. But um, let me just say, I think 
zero net energy buildings, I think there's a lot of R&D that has gone into it. It's, it's, the question really is zero net energy, and if you could make it zero net cost, then it'll scale. And that's the difficult part. In the building side, in the energy efficiency side, you know, there are some market failures, which is why we have had some very successful, uh, and Hal has written about this in his book, on, on applying standards, codes and standards. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the trajectory of, you know, for example, the classic refrigerator standards, and there are many other standards, appliance standards, they have had a huge impact. And, and, and by the way, standards are sort of the, the bottom line. Right? There are energy star, and they ought to be energy superstars as well <laughs> to make it really, really efficient. But what we don't have are, we, today we have building codes, and, and codes are great. I mean, they have really brought down the, uh, the energy consumption in buildings, et cetera. But what the codes are for design, and one of the things that, that I mentioned in my testimony to, to the Senate is, in addition to so it's like, you know, you, you get a stamp, you know, you got a code and you build it, but it doesn't quite operate the way you've designed it. Okay, so there are some lead rated buildings and we are all very proud of our lead rated buildings. But if you actually look at the data right. on how these lead rating buildings actually operate, there is no correlation with the, re- with the rating, whether it's gold or platinum and all, there's no correlation. And so I think we really need to look at some kind of a standard based on actual measured performance. And once you do that, and unless you measure, you'll, know, you, you'll never know where the problem really is. And the building may look beautiful from outside, but it may be crummy from the inside on the energy efficiency. We know about that here in this wonderful new green building. There was an architect who designed it, and they gave us the keys one day and said, see you later, and now we're operating it, and may not be using it exactly the way Kate Gordon... I just want to... Both of you have brought up these really important points about buildings and cars, and I just wanted to ask what you think about um, how quickly these fleets of buildings and that are owned by individuals and cars that are owned by individuals, how quickly can we actually turn these things over? I mean, people are, the Ford F-150 is still the most popular car in America. Uh, people are holding onto their cars longer now than they did before the recession. New houses have great standards, but what about existing houses? We know retrofit policy does not have great uptake. So how do we deal with all this capital stock that's out there that needs to be trans- transitioned? So on the vehicle side, there's a natural capital stock turnover, and it's about 14 years for a car, about a million to a million and a half miles for a heavy-duty truck. People aren't always buying new cars after 14 years. They're buying off Craigslist. They're buying used cars. No, but that's the, life of, that's the average life of a car. Right, right. right. But they're so not, that's, just, that's right. taken the two or three owners that it may, might have. It, it is slow, yep. and this is one of the things we have to deal with. It, it puts a premium on starting early. Right. So right now, the most important building code in the world would be in India and China. That's right. Because they're, they have less than half their built stuff. space. Right. Exactly. Right. Right. Um, re- retrofitting uh, homes and offices is more complex, um, no question. Some of the best programs have been run by utilities. Because right. um, they're more centralized, right? They're more centralized. Yeah. They have all the data. They can raise capital very easily. They can hire experts and get economies of scale. Um, and so forth. But I don't want to pretend that retrofitting a house is, is a simple thing. On the other hand, most people do, over the course of 20 years, do a retrofit, and at that moment, they should put in better windows, better insulation in the ceiling, and, and so forth. If you're just joining us, we're talking about zero energy economy at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. My guests are Kate Gordon, fellow at the Columbia University Center on Global Energy Policy, Hal Harvey, an energy expert and author, 
and Arun Medjumdar, co-director of the Precourt Institute for Energy at Stanford University. Um, Hal Harvey, there's, by your estimates, going to be a, another $2 billion gasoline cars built. $2 billion uh, in number. $2, two billion total. So there's a billion yeah. now. So another billion built to get to, a, to, a, to 2 billion cars. So what can be done to, you know, a lot of people don't like to hear that. We say we have to get off gasoline. We have to get away from gasoline cars. There could be another billion built. How much room is there to make the internal combustion engine more efficient? Is that for real or is that just kind of a Detroit, um, you know, party line? There are huge opportunities to make cars more efficient. Both the engine itself, uh, right now the average engine in a car is a pathetically inefficient machine. Right now the, only about 10% of the energy you put in the car actually moves the car. So the engine starts off by losing more than 60% of it in forms of heat up the radiator and the exhaust pipe. But there are other frontiers we should pay attention to. Aerodynamics is getting better. Why is the underbelly of your car rough and the top smooth? An airplane, the whole thing's smooth. Mm -hmm. For example, lightweighting, huge frontiers. The BMW i3 is carbon fiber from the knee up and aluminum from the knee down, and it weighs 1,300 pounds less than the average American car. It's a beautiful electric car. And the Ford F-150 is now aluminum. The Ford F-150 bed is aluminum. General Motors is offering a carbon fiber bed in their pickup truck. Better tires, reduced auxiliary loads like lighting, um, and even changing the paint. They have now these molecularly reflective paints that drop your engine inter the interior of your car temperature by 10 degrees, and they're the same color. They look the same, and you can do the same with the glass. So there's no reason trucks shouldn't push into the 35-plus miles per gallon and cars well into the 50s uh, without changing function or safety. But during the uh, Obama administration, remember GM and, and Fiat Chrysler went bankrupt. The auto companies were bailed out. They made a pledge to uh, President Obama to increase cafe fuel efficiency standards. They were the first industry after Donald Trump was elected saying, oh, whoa, new day. So tell us about that update of, of continuing the cafe standards. So that was a grotesque breach of faith, um, which is pretty unforgivable. They cut a deal and the taxpayers bailed them out. And, and they agreed to this comprehensive uh, um, measure. And then they did go in and ask for leniency. What they asked for was actually fairly mild. What they got was much more than they wanted. Was, so right now you have the, the spectacle of both the unions and the auto companies protesting the Trump administration's rollback of automobile fuel efficiency standards. Right. They, ha they set their targets. They're engineering toward them. Let them go. And how do U.S. standards compare to Korea? Hal Harvey, this is there's a chart in your book, Korea, European Union, China. We're, we're, we're below all of that. We were on the right track with the Obama standards. By the way, those are still the law. And the other thing to keep in mind is California has its own standards. And 13 other states choose the California way. And the Trump administration is trying to revoke that right, but they haven't managed that yet. I, think, I don't think they're going to be able to. So if we push cars into 54 miles per gallon, which was roughly the Obama standard, it depends on the fleet mix, we're right up there with China, Korea, Japan, and the European Union. We're a little behind some, a little ahead of others, but that's perfectly great territory. Arun Majumdar, are robotic cars going to push EVs? push EV adoption because uh, robotics, easier to have a robotic car that's electric than, than internal combustion, or is that just going to not be a factor? It's going to make more cars out there because we don't care who's driving them. So, so when you say robotic cars, I, I suppose you mean self-driving autonomous car. I think fully autonomous cars on the streets, I don't think that's going to happen in, in like very soon. You know, when we actually look at fully autonomous that you don't need the driver, there are tons of issues that we have. I mean, like driving is actually a social activity. 
when you're trying to merge onto a freeway, and you think about it, there are, there's a social connection that is going on, and to emulate that on a, on a computing platform is non-trivial. I think what will what, happen is that there are lots of places where there's, the autonomy, autonomy is actually going to assist the driver to reduce accidents and, and thereby actually reduce safe lives. And I think that's where we'll first see um, I, I th there's a lot of business incentive to make it fully autonomous because it'll remove the Uber driver so that it actually you know, it reduces the cost. But I think we'll see on trucking, on some lanes, we'll see that. And that actually is really important because drivers are, the truck drivers are driving in a, uh, hours that they should not be driving, and that'll reduce the number of accidents. So I think there are other factors that will drive this than just purely economic. Well, and those safety points go to lightweighting, too, because the, one of the reasons we require cars to be so heavy right now is because of safety concerns. If those safety improvements are put in, you, you could see a faster adoption of some of the lightweighting technology, which is pretty cool. So technology-assisted. Humans are still playing a role in there with lots of technology around them to keep us from doing the stupid stuff that we do. <laughs> Right. I'm not dead yet. <laughs> <laughs> Still hanging in there. You know, the, the carbon conversation tends to gravitate towards tailpipes, smokestacks. Uh, Arun Majumdar, I want to talk about land use, agriculture, deforestation, which often doesn't quite get the, the attention it deserves in the climate conversation. Your thoughts there on, on that being maybe, what, fifth zero? I think so. I mean, I, if you really look at the climate equation, energy and climate equation, I call it the simultaneous equation you've got to solve. And that is we are at 1.2 or 3 degrees above uh, a temp global average temperature rise. If you want to keep the temperatures below 2 degrees, because the tail of that 2 degrees is really bad, we have a, a budget of around 800 gigatons of CO2, roughly 800 to 1,000. That's the debate. But it's in that range. We are emitting about 40 gigatons of CO2 per year, roughly, globally. So you do the math. If the emissions are flat, um, we have about 20 years. And after that, it has to be zero. Okay? So that's, that's the equation we have to solve. Now, given the economic growth that we are seeing in China, India, and other parts of the world, we can't tell them not to grow because it's prosperity, et cetera. And they're trying, you know, China is trying. India is, is trying to do that as well with renewables, et cetera. But the construction of steel and concrete are such that if they want to grow, they will be emissions. And so the question is what, what else, what's plan B? And the plan B has to be some level of negative emissions. I think if you look at all the predictions, all the projections and calculations by IPCC, and if you want to keep it below two degrees, you've got to have ne negative emissions. So what's their negative emissions? What does negative emissions? If you look at the Keeling curve, that is the CO2 you know, going up and down, why does it go up and down? It's because of photosynthesis. That bring us, brings us back to agriculture, forestry, it's uh, reforestation, afforestation, et cetera. And we've got to figure this out, that how do we take that one lever that we have and use that to induce negative emissions? And just to jump in there, that the, the, in the spring, there's lots of uh, foliage that then sucks carbon out. In the fall, it falls off. The carbon goes back in. That's, That's the right. fluctuation. It, because in the northern hemisphere, we have more plants than, we have more land and plants than in the southern hemisphere. That's why I see this oscillation. Now, 
on the other end. So that's what we desire. That's what we want to see. We want, to, want the plants to suck out the CO2 from the atmosphere and put it deep in the ground because most of it goes back, and we don't know how to do that yet. But on the other hand, if you look at food and agriculture itself and consider that if that sector were a country, the CO2 emissions from that would be next to China, U.S., and then food and agriculture. That's where we are. And so I think we are on the wrong end right now. We've got to turn that around and see how we could use that to induce negative emissions, keep it down in the ground. And that's where the R&D and the policy, all of that should be going as well. However, your thoughts that there's been you know, too much focus on metal and pipes and not, a lot, not enough on nature, using soil, agriculture to try to um, put carbon back in the ground that we've taken out of the ground, burned it and put it in the air. Well, certainly the first thing we should do is stop deforestation altogether and look at realms where we can do afforestation and let nature do what nature does best. Nature fixes carbon in the soil and, of course, in the biomass itself. I'm a little nervous about large-scale plantations to be used for either biofuels or to be burned and then have the carbon sequestered, even though it makes you carbon negative, but because very large, it would require very large alterations of the landscape with who knows what ecological issues, and it puts food and fuel in competition with each other. And when rich people's fuel is in competition with poor people's food, we know what's going to happen. It's not going to be, it's not going to be pretty. Um, so I guess, I guess the way I would think of, I think the way to think about this is because we have a very limited carbon budget, it's, it's staggeringly small compared to business as usual. We need to look at the options that take the biggest hunks out of it the fastest. So it's all about scale and speed. There will be stuff we have to do 30 years from now um, to clean it up, to finish the job. But you can't, you don't have the luxury of doing the last 5% unless you've done the first 95%. So we need to go after speed and scale, and that requires tackling the four big uh, energy sectors. Kate Gordon? Yeah, I think that's, I absolutely think that's right to go after those four big sectors, but we know from the latest intergovernmental panel on climate change report uh, that just came out about how to get to 1.5 degrees, which is what the island nations believe we need to do, so they're not underwater, we need to start thinking about carbon removal now. We can't wait for the second half of the century to start doing the research and development and getting this to scale and figuring out the technology and stopping deforestation uh, because the, these things are, have got to be part of the current solution. And I would just go beyond land side and say I'm really interested in some of the more engineered solutions. They are still pipes and industry, but it's, it's interesting things like how do you do direct air capture to get uh, to get carbon directly out of the atmosphere and then sequester it. What are other, there's something called enhanced weatherization or mineralization, where you take a natural process where rock, certain types of rock bind to carbon already, and you basically crush the rock so that there's more surface area, so more carbon binds to it, and you spread it over a larger area. People are looking into some of this stuff now. It's expensive, but we need to figure out whether you can do it, whether it can be safe, whether it can be done at scale, whether the technology can get cheaper. There's also very cool stuff that I think is cool because it's at the intersection of the built environment piece and the carbon piece, which is how do you take carbon dioxide or methane and turn it into products to replace plastics, to replace petrochemicals, to replace furniture, to replace building materials sometimes. Um, that's very cool, that whole set of things. And, and I, I kind of, I worry that we will think all of that is a later problem. And 
it, we know from all of the modeling that we actually need to be doing this at the same time. And there's part of the shift of carbon not being the enemy, carbon being an input rather than something that a bad thing. Right. Arun right. Dar, you know, yep. put it into cement, put it in you know, carbon as yep. a resource rather than an enemy that we have to you know, drive a dagger into the heart of it. I think what is really missing is the sense of urgency. Because if you look at 1.5 degrees, it's about 13 years. If you look at two degrees, which is what we agreed upon in, in Paris, it's 20 years. Either way you take it, it's, it's 13 or 20 away. years. I mean, that's, that's the range. Yeah. So some of us may be alive out there, but our children <laughs> and grandchildren will certainly will have to face the brunt of this. And, that is, and after that, by the way, it's zero. You know, we, we get into the tyranny of or. It is the, is the time for and. Yeah. And I think that's what we need to put all hands on deck in trying to address this. There's a focus uh, often, uh, Kate Gordon, on voluntary virtuous action. You know, what can an individual yeah. do? Uh, because people feel frustrated that policy is elusive and it's yeah. slow. Um, so is there a role for voluntary virtuous? Is that necessary and insufficient? What's the role? I mean, of course there's a role. I mean, we are, uh, just to echo, we're in a period of and. So everything matters, right? It matters if it's at the scale of me as an individual, you as an individual. It matters if it's about you replacing your boiler in your company. It matters if it's about you controlling an entire supply chain. All of these things are really, really important. You know, I struggle with all this all the time because three of the biggest things one can do as an individual to reduce carbon impact are stop flying, don't eat meat, and don't have children, and those are all hard. Those are hard things to ask people to do. I will say that I'm, the more and more I have these conversations about the food piece of this, the more I'm moving toward the not eating meat. And it's one thing that is, is doable. But I, I, I know this is frustrating to people. I also think that you can, you can vote, obviously. That's a huge thing you can do to influence um, this conversation. Also, anyone who's an investor, I spend a lot of time talking to investors, and investors need to start thinking about this stuff. It's, it's looking at companies that aren't paying attention to their climate risk, that aren't doing some of the actions they can do at a much larger scale to solve these problems, we all should be voting with our feet and voting with our wallets and, and doing more because it isn't useless to do can, more. Can I be the skunk at the garden party? Here? Please, skunk it up. <laughs> skunk it up. Um, I think the essence of strategy is making choices and then focusing on them very hard. I think the opposite of strategy is trying to do everything. Mm -hmm. Our biggest shortage in the world is political bandwidth and political courage to do the right thing. And if we spend that political bandwidth stopping this pipeline or divesting New York's pension fund from coal stocks or trying to convince our fellow citizens to be vegetarians, we're not using that to, to decarbonize the grid, move to electric vehicles, and so forth. And, and, and let me just take one more yeah. sec with this. So there's this uh, crowds of people at 350.org who have been all activated, and none of them, not none of them, but very few of them are actually working on the things where the zeros are. And so we lose. It's very hard for individuals to work on policy. It's, it's very far away for most people. It is not within people's day-to-day -day lives. Isn't that what an election is? I, it, 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 in a, in a, in a non-direct, in an indirect way, I think there is still really, I really think there's value in mobilizing the base, energizing the base. I think there's value but in keeping people involved because they then are advocates. We've we got to point them in the right direction. I, I just think, I think that people have an easier time fighting a thing they can see or that's affecting them directly yeah. or arguing about a tangible object like a pipeline. It is just easier to do that. What I like are the times when those actions, and I'll bring up divestment again because it's, it's striking to me. I was one of those people on the divestment movement who said, if you actually look at the numbers, this isn't going to work. 
And it's not going to make that big of a difference because of all of the state-owned oil and gas in the world and all of the decisions that are not made by investors. It turned out that the divestment movement actually made a really big difference in a different way, in that it led to a bunch of universities having a very serious conversation with their investment teams, which they would not have had otherwise, and a bunch of endowments doing the same thing, and actual company behavior shifts because of shareholder actions. That was important and big. It wasn't what they meant to do, but it was an important outcome. Can you name any oil wells or coal mines that were shut down because of lack of capital? Not lack of return, no, no, but that's, lack of No, no, but that's my point, is that it didn't have the impact that it, was, that it was designed to have, but it had a broader impact in a bunch of different sectors. I really do think it did. And it, and it led to some divestment from coal from some endowments and from some universities. But they didn't shut the coal mines down. My point is just that it had an impact that was beyond mobilizing the base. I would imagine that. Yeah, let, let me just echo what, what Hal just said. We have a gigaton scale problem, okay? It's not a megaton. It's a gigaton. We emit 40 gigatons. Hard to get a head around what that means. It's, it, it's, it's a lot. <laughs> it's a huge amount. Big. It's big. And we need gigaton scale solutions. If we look, if we focus on things that even at its best can do a few megatons, a few hundred megatons, it ain't gonna cut it. And I think we should look for solutions that, are, that can scale. Scale is everything, both in volume and mass at the gigaton, and also be cost effective. Because if the economics doesn't work, it just ain't going to cut it. So I think that's the challenge that we have. What are those solutions? In fact, we wrote a report. I was in um, Ernie Muniz, uh, former Secretary of Energy Advisory Board, and, and he asked the question, what do we need to do? And this was, we had, he gave us only six months to write this report. We did it. And what we basically said is that if you're looking for gigaton scale solutions, and he asked, how many industries are there today at the gigaton scale? There are only six. It's oil, gas, coal, steel, yeah. concrete, agriculture. Yeah. Okay? So these, we have to convince them to be part of the solution as opposed to being part of the problem. And I think that's why we need to engage with them and make them realize that this is a historic opportunity for them to be the stewards of this earth, not just the stewards of the shareholders. In fact, they have shareholder pressure to turn that way right now. We're talking about low-carbon economy at Climate One with Kate Gordon, fellow at the Columbia University Center on Global Energy Policy, and Hal Harvey, energy expert and author, and Arun Majumdar, co-director of the Precourt Institute for Energy at Stanford. I'm Greg Dalton. Let's go to our audience questions. Welcome to Climate One. Hi, my name is Matt Renner. Um, I think that the last question was about uh, the political will, right? And we actually have an analogy, that, which is World War II. We mobilized in an incredible speed to actually build momentum to fight fascism. America became the production engine that won the war. What can you imagine happening? What is the political frame or what is the social frame that actually gets us to gigaton scale, actually leapfrogs from things that could scale to things that are scaling and gets us there in 12 years, not 20, not 30, before it's too late and before more towns are burning to the ground? Thank Kate, you. Kate Gordon, you're kind of the framing person. It's, it, it's a really hard question. I think um, the, the thing that I struggle with a lot working on this issue, as I've done for 20 years on climate change, is that while the problem is inherently global, the impacts are extraordinarily local. Right. 
The impact here in California right now is wildfires. It will be it will be mudslides next year probably. Whereas the impact in Houston is something else. Whereas the impact in the in the Northwest is ocean acidification. Whereas the impact, so it's very very local. The timescales are different. It's not all hitting everyone at the same time. Um, and there's no global governance mechanism other than the UN, which is flawed um, for this. That to solve it. I think G20. So G20, G20, G20 I would like to see the whole thing shift over to be an economic issue um, uh, and not in sort of the bucket it's still mostly in, which is sort of environmental um, negotiations. If, if we could get shift this over to be a G, the, the focus of G20, the World Economic Forum already in its 2018 Global Risk Report highlighted environmental risks, climate impacts, and the transition risk and litigation risk from climate change as some of the biggest global risks that we're facing. I think that's a start at sort of moving it. So, so what's it going to take? It's going to take shifting this to become a global economic crisis that builds on all of the local impacts and, and builds them up into something shared. I think that there's some hope. Um, you know, we've sort of created a situation in which China has turned to Europe um, as a new natural ally in the climate fight. That's actually not necessarily a bad thing in terms of creating momentum, creating markets, and moving some um, mindshare toward this. Do I think it's going to happen in 12 years? It's really, really tough because not only do you have local impacts, but you have local political actors who are reelected all the time. As we know, we just set ourselves back in this country. We set ourselves back during the Reagan era in this country. We set ourselves, we continually, um, Australia was a, was a leader and then it wasn't. UK was a leader and then it wasn't. It's extremely challenging. But I think if we can, if we can make this into something, to me, it's a macroeconomic issue like globalization and like automation. This is coming we need to deal with it. It's something we all need to get behind, whether we're in the private sector or the public sector, and it's a large um, fight. I think that's where we need to go. Harvey, just two words of, of hope. First one is millennials. I think there's an opportunity with the next generation. They, they're not voting in, if they voted in the numbers they should, we'd have this one licked. Um, so that's, that's an issue. The other scaling machine that beats all scaling machines, I suppose, is China, mm -hmm. right? And, and the Chinese government takes science seriously, and they are seriously battling climate change, but they are also building coal-fired power plants. So it's a race of good and evil, and evil has a big head start, and good is accelerating faster. Um, but we don't know how that one's going to come out. But, well, but it, is, it is amazing, the transformations already. Let's go to our next question. Welcome to Climate One. Thank you. My name is Singy Yu from Alameda. I have had been this growing concern that we may actually have less time than we think we do because the carbon accounting has been wrong, certainly with municipalities. The carbon markets have gotten the carbon accounting wrong. And I'm wondering if there's a realization in other areas as well about this. I did just really briefly on this, I will say that their politics plays a role, too. One of the biggest concerns that I have right now is that the new Brazil president, will, who's just combined in the economic and agriculture departments, will deforest a huge amount of the Amazon. That would create, that would change the carbon budget if that happened, and that would be a political decision that would have huge implications. Um, so I think we can't control it necessarily. That's one, one important point, um, just, just on the political side. I won't get into the accounting side, and one of you guys might want to. So I'll tell you where the, <laughs> where the risk is. I mean, I completely agree with the person who asked the question. So if the permafrost starts warming, it is warming, there are organisms out there called methanogens. They generate, they eat the carbon in that soil, and they generate methane. 
when that methane goes up in the atmosphere, that has a global warming potential anywhere from 30 to 60 times that of CO2. And that is a positive feedback that we have not accounted for in our climate models. Okay, so just to give you the, I don't want to, it is scary, sorry to say this, because if that happens, if that's a tipping point that we reach, it is irreversible. I, I think, frankly, it's, there are many aspects of this, and if someone asked me about two degrees, and one, I think 1.5 is already baked in, because most of the heat is being absorbed in the oceans, okay? And we are creating a new ocean in the Arctic right now, and the Antarctic is melting. So... This is, this is all real, and I think that tipping point, if we, I don't know when, no one knows when we're going to reach that. Which is because why it's not in the models, usually. It's not in the yeah, models. Because it's and that's a positive predict. feedback tipping point. The Stone Age did not come to an end because of lack of stones. <laughs> I think the fossil fuel age will not come to an end because of lack of fossil fuels. We have to come up with new solutions, exactly yes. what was said yeah. earlier. And that's what we should be looking for. We've been talking about zero emission solutions here at Climate One. Greg Dalton's guests were Arun Majumdar, co-director at the Precord Institute for Energy at Stanford, Kate Gordon of the Columbia Center on Global Energy Policy, and Hal Harvey, CEO of Energy Innovation. His new book is Designing Climate Solutions, a policy guide for low-carbon energy. To hear all our Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast at our website, climateone.org, where you'll also find photos, video clips, and more. And join us next time for another conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. Climate One is a special project of the Commonwealth Club of California. Kelly Pennington and Sarah Catherine Coxon run our audience engagement. Tyler Reed is our producer. The audio engineers are Mark Kirshner and Justin Norton. Annie Chelsea and Devin Strolovich edit the show. I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer and host. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Climate One is produced in association with KQED Public Radio.